today on the Eater Upsell, we're talking to Hugh Atchison, the super cool, super funny, super smart Georgia-based chef of five restaurants and author of like three cookbooks, including the recent The Broad Fork, which is all about vegetables. He's smart and I cannot wait to talk with him. But before we chat with Hugh, you know, Helen, there's something I wanted to mention to you and just kind of touch base. I don't know what your morning routine is, but for me, it's usually reading page six. And there's something I find very fascinating. It's a continuing storyline about how Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the great actors, I think, of our generation, huge box office titan, environmentalist, XYZ, he does a lot, he's a big guy. He loves going to the douchiest clubs around when he's in New York, like every single night, and being flanked by models and getting bottle service. I guess I wouldn't expect anything less from him. (laughs) I mean... I just like, it's like a phase he never outgrew, and I find that so fascinating. It is weird. I mean, like, he has really good taste in movie projects and environmentally friendly automobiles, and then just has the worst taste possible in how to spend the hours of 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Yeah, and as I understand it, it's kind of like, well, this is how I imagine it, is that he rolls into Tao or One Oak or one of those places at like 10 and then just kind of gets a booth and he just holds court for like seven hours and celebrities pop in and say, here's his buddy Jonah Hill. Hey, there's Jamie Foxx. They're going to come say, yeah, sure, let's get another bottle. And then by the end of the night, he's like flanked with all these models. And then, you know, he leaves at last call. And that's just kind of his, it's kind of his nightly ritual. That's a beautiful picture, you know? I mean, it's terrible, but it's also like, I don't know what, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Like you're not married. You're this sort of fading teen heartthrob, right? Like, because he does occupy this very strange space in the world of celebrity. Like, you know, he's in these big deal movies, but like nobody's like dying over Leonardo DiCaprio the way we were when Titanic came out in like 98 or he, something. He's not the total babe that he was no, back in the day. not super hot. But he's like, starting to look like Papa Hemingway a little bit. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Oh my God. He's totally the Hemingway of actors. And in exactly the same way that like later in his life, Hemingway went from being like this super badass who did all of these incredible things and like wrote powerfully about all of them. Like he kind of became a little bit sad and self-obsessed like Leonardo DiCaprio is. Oh, my. You nailed it. Going to nightclubs, like going to terrible nightclubs is Leonardo DiCaprio's Key West. Wow. That's heavy. On another Leo note, I got to say, I remember that right after Wolf of Wall Street came out, like the string of Leo sightings at this totally out of the way, nothing restaurant somewhere down in Battery Park City, really close to actually where they filmed a lot of Wolf of Wall Street. Convenient. Convenient. And I just, I'd never heard of this place. I had to look it up. And I guess he was just there like three nights in a row and he was sitting outside. It was like, he finds these little pockets where he can exist and just be, you know, the prince of whatever his world is. I love this idea of people holding court in restaurants. Like it feels like this very godfathery kind of way of thinking about things. You know, like you sit in the place where you can see the entire room. And like, of course, you have like your arms sort of draped over the backs of the booth that you're sitting at the corner of. And you just like you survey it and you're the king. And these OG restaurants, like these like classic clubby mafioso kinds of places, like not just in New York, I think everywhere often have these men who hold court 
like oh yeah no like he gets the same thing every single time he orders off the menu like bring him his artichokes without him even asking and like they just like survey the room we don't have that anymore in like the new no one's like the king of momofuku noodle bar (laughs) no sadly well you can't really be the king of noodle bar for very long i mean it's a pretty quick turnaround that meal and i guess you can't really hold court at noodle bar unless you are constantly stuffing yourself with food. And you'd have to have like a really strong core because like you can't lean back in the booth because none of the seats have backs on them. Yeah, you would have to be some sort of like um, uh, Olympian with this amazing, yeah, musculature. Like a Greco-Roman physique and then you Mm -hmm. can like perch on the bar stool with perfect posture and stare at everybody while they eat and like, no, it doesn't fly. I don't know, man, I didn't realize this, but I think I want to be the king of a restaurant. I know a little bit about you, and I know that you really do like to frequent certain restaurants at certain times of the day. It's true. I'm a creature of habit. Uh, what's your like? What's your recent What's your recent love affair? I, you know, I flow in and out. Like, I was really, really in love with Andrew Carmelini's French Bistro Lafayette for like a very long time, and I still love it. I still love it in the way that like you never stop loving your exes. But I'm having a fling right now with this place Santina the latest from the Terezi crew where my move and this is super important the move is lunch not dinner and I know we've talked before about how much you love lunch but like this place more than any other place is night and day between the lunch crowd and the dinner crowd have you been I was there for dinner and I I always appreciate their restaurants for one reason or another there are these productions and sometimes the food and everything really hits and sometimes it doesn't quite jive with me my one visit, I thought it was a spectacle, but didn't love it. What time of day were you there? I was there at like 9.30 on a Friday night. But I mean, it was. It felt like the very district it was in, which was the meatpacking district. 9.30 on a weekend night. That, I mean, that's Leonardo DiCaprio time, though. Like, that's, that's the true. thing, right? Like, that's sure, it's a restaurant, but it's full of rich, tall people. But there like, were so many tall people waiting for the bathroom. The bathroom line, like, extended into the main area of the dining room. And they're all tall and they're all beautiful. They all have to pee. (laughs) Well, something. They have to do something. I guess they're drinking so much mineral water. You have a very generous understanding of what tall, (laughs) famous, rich people do in the bathroom, Greg. Like, you have a beautiful, naive heart. I guess I'm perhaps (laughs) sheltered. But, um, you know, I wasn't like, I'll definitely give it another shot, but. I wasn't quite catching the Santina magic, but... But the magic happens during the day. And I think some of it is because at night the magic gets sucked out. And there are probably restaurants like this everywhere where, like, it has this sort of beautiful synthesis moment where the sun is streaming in and the crowd is not completely full of assholes. And the food is great and, like, well-priced. And you do feel, like, perfectly transported to Portofino in 1986, And you're like, oh, I didn't realize how much I needed this in my life, but I need this in my life so desperately. Welcome to the Eater Upsell, Hugh. Well, thanks. It's good to be upselling. (laughs) Do you upsell often? No, actually, we downsell. I I have a theory that upselling doesn't really get you customers for long term. Are you serious about that? Downselling? Uh Yeah, so if somebody looks at like a $75 bottle of wine on the list, we'll point them to a 50 and hope that they'll come back and get another one. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know what? That totally works on me, though, with the wine. That's, yeah. yeah. It yeah. creates so much trust. Yeah, it's it's trust. And it's kind of belief in your systems that, you know, that everything you curate is actually meant to be good, regardless of the price point. There's no cheap in our restaurant. There's inexpensive, we like to say. It's a good turn of phrase. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, Hugh, you are one of the sort of leading figures in the, I hate using this phrase because it sounds so reductive, but the, the Southern food renaissance that I feel has swept the rest of the country in the last couple of years. Mean. Okay. But you're not Southern. Right. You have a secret. I have a secret. I'm secretly Canadian. (laughs) So yes, I'm a displaced Canadian from Ottawa, Ontario. Ottawa's like the south of Canada, right? Where everybody lives in Canada is the south of Canada. (laughs) Because if you live in the north of Canada, you are a whale. Um, Like literally. (laughs) Or a bear. um, Or a bear. But there are not many of those left. Um, So yeah, I. but I've been in the south for... Geez, I lived here for four years or lived in the south, southern United States when I was, for four years when I was like 10 to 14 and then moved back when I was 25 and I've been here ever since and I'm now 87 years old. What brought you? You look great for 87, by the Thank way. You. What's your skincare secret? Uh, coconut oil. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of the coolest Americans are, you know, secretly Canadian and, and kind of expats. Do you, got, do you and Joni Mitchell and uh, Neil Young ever hang out and just kind of talk about the unusual identity I'm more of a uh, Drake Drake is Canadian yeah Drake's Canadian I'm more of a Brian Adams Alex Trebek type of oh yeah sort of posse but yes, yes. I don't, Brian Adams doesn't really pretend to be American though does he uh he's pretending to be something I'm not sure what <laughs> uh, an entertainer maybe that's it how was uh childhood in Ottawa is that a city you you still love still hold a hold a candle for it it's really boring but it's a great town. It's it's very pretty. It's you know the center of government there, so it's the capital city, and uh, it's good. You know, I went to an inner, inner city high school that was a great high school. I didn't pay attention. I skipped school a lot and played snooker, <laughs> and I worked after school. So starting when I was fourteen, I was cooking in various kitchens and around the city, and sort of uh, realizing that I paid much more attention to cooking than I did uh, schoolwork. Wow. What was your first job? A dishwasher at a place called Bank Street Cafe. Which I think is not there anymore, but yeah. Was it, uh, were you stoked doing that job? Or were you like, I got to move up to something else? No, I mean, I was relatively stoked just watching it. I mean, I was really young, 14, 15 years old, watching these, uh, you know, journeymen, real journeymen cooks, you know, line cooks who, you know, were just giving it their all every day in a place that wasn't very good. But, you know, it was, to, to me, it was just kind of cool watching these guys work because a lot of them were had ideas of doing other jobs, but this was the skill set they were relying on for the present term. So I kind of went through high school and then went to university knowing how to cook and learning how to cook and cooking at better and better restaurants. And I always thought, oh, it would be a great trade to have just in case, but it just eventually just became the thing I did. So, so it was like maybe your backup or something. It was a backup. Yeah. Where'd, you go to, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to college? I went to Concordia University and studied political philosophy for two years, but kind of very similar to uh, my high schooling. I didn't really pay attention, skipped a lot of school. Yeah. Political yeah. philosophy feels like it might have some weird lateral like help running a kitchen, though. You can be like, listen, I know how to effectively manipulate large groups of people. Yeah, yeah let's sit down and talk about Kierkegaard. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yes and no. Um, yeah, I... I yeah, I, I mean, it teaches you some relative notion of leadership, but yeah, I think real leadership is just being yourself and uh, having an apt willingness to do whatever job is in front of you, regardless of your position. In the first phase of your life as a chef, what was the thing you were interested in? What were you good at? Was it, you know, make an omelet, or you know, pasta or something? You know, when I was 16 years old, I remember walking into a kitchen, somebody being like, oh, I'm glad you're here. 
I was like, wait a minute. You're like 40. Why are you glad I'm here? And it was just, uh, I don't know. I was good at whatever I did in the kitchens. And it, and I tried really hard. And uh, and it showed. So I wouldn't say there's anything really, you know, one thing that I was really good at. But I could butcher really well, butcher chickens really well, really quickly, things like that. So what brought you back to the South? My wife's American and uh, she and I were living in Canada and she wanted to do her master's. So we went to Athens, Georgia. And I've been working in pretty fine dining in Canada at an old, old school French restaurant called Henri Berger uh, that was around. It's now closed, but it was in existence for 86 years and was kind of a very big diplomat hangout type of restaurant, really old school French. It was a great restaurant. And so... You know, I arrived in Athens, Georgia, which is a great town, but culinarily it was a little podunk at the time. And, uh, you know, it was in the 80s and or not 90s, sorry, 1996. And, uh, you know, it was a little wishy-washy in the world of cuisine at that point in time. But it was a big music town. It's a big music town. It was a great town. It just didn't have much food wise. So I worked there for two years at a restaurant called The Last Resort and kind of ran the front of the house and the kitchen and did everything in a very busy restaurant. And uh, then moved to San Francisco for two years and worked a number of jobs out there. Uh, worked at a place called Mecca, uh, which is a I have dinner eaten club. there. It's closed now. That's ridiculous. I, I, this history of closed <laughs> restaurants. Was, what was Mecca all about? That was the first place I ever had tuna tartare. Yeah, I mean, it was a tuna tartare It tar came with these like, potato, like these like waffle cut potato chips. Yeah, that This was like be... 98 or something. It was. <laughs> yeah, I was probably back there in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, Hugh might have um, cooked that for you, that's man. That's crazy. At that point in time, the uh, restaurant was run. Um, it was a very nightclub-y restaurant uh, and, you know, verging on the Castro. Uh, very, you know, uh, uh, a lot of cocktails type of thing, drag Sundays. It was interesting, but it was a good restaurant, and it was really, really busy. Mike Fennelly was the chef there at the time um, who had his name in New Orleans and in Santa Fe, New Mexico, back in the day. So I worked there and then left there and went to open Gary Danko um, wow. and stayed there. We uh, Douglas Keene and I came on as... Sous chefs. Dougie was the executive sous chef, and I was just right underneath him. And we were there, you know, five, four months prior to opening, tiling the floor and doing all that sort of stuff. And then we opened, and I think I left like two months, you know, very shortly after it opened. Did you cotton to the San Francisco, you know, culinary vibe? Was it, were you into it, or was it, you know, not totally your thing? You know, I love San Francisco. It is really, I mean, it's changed a fair bit in the last few years with living wage regulations and things like that. But if you're earning, you know, $32,000 a year in San Francisco, it takes you 45 minutes to get to work. Life's not great. It's a little miserable. And, you know, working in kitchens at that point in time, you know, working 16, 17 hours a day. So, you know, a little debilitating after a while. Um, but then I got an offer to go back to Athens and we opened our first restaurant, which was five and 10. And that was like 18 years ago now. 18 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That is a coconut long time oil. for a restaurant. <laughs> you rub yep. coconut oil all over all the restaurant. All too. over the restaurant <laughs> and my body. It keeps everything young. Yes. Wait, I didn't think I realized that you worked with Douglas Keene. Dougie. 
So Douglas won Top Chef Masters. He did. Was it season four? Yeah. That was I, the season after. I, was, I had that little video show after it online or yeah. whatever. With the sous chefs. Battle of the sous chefs. That was, so Top Chef has been a really interesting part of your life. It has been. It's waning. I'm really not on that much this season. I'm on a couple of episodes. And we still like it. But, you know, it's it's busy. It's a lot of work to do. And it's a lot of time to commit to. But we love it, and it's fun, and it's given me a lot of opportunities. So I kind of got into that realm of, I said no to Top Chef many, many times. And then when they called me about Top Chef Masters, I figured, oh, it's for charity. So at least I'll have an excuse. <laughs> so why did, um, why did you say no the original times? You're thinking, oh, it's a little... Because I was really busy. I was mm-hmm. operating a single, my own restaurant. I was the wine guy. I was the accountant, the plumber, the, you know the guy making up doing all the mm-hmm. butchery making all the food so there was just not much time um and you know by the time top chef masters called i had opened i was just about to open empire state south so that's five years ago and i had opened up the national so i was you know when you open up multiple places you begin to realize that if you want it you've actually covered your bases so you can begin to do some other things um and so I said yes and went on there, and it was a really funny, weird, odd experience competing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great cast. It was a really interesting group. Was that the year Costantino won? No, no that was the year after, I think. Um, uh, what's his name? Floyd Cardoz won. That was it, yeah. And it was George Mendez and Mary Sue Milliken and, I mean, it, it, you know, Tracy Desjardins. And it's like all a murderer's row of amazing guests. Yeah. Saran. Yes. That oh, was, he was hilarious he was on, that, on that season. <laughs> no, was, his best was his, his uh, dramatic uh, readings of the recaps, uh, which were uh, written by uh, Eddie Huang. Uh, whatever oh, yeah? He would read them? Which were hilarious. Oh, yeah. But I, I quickly figured out after the first episode where I actually lost and was then invited back. I remember that. It was yeah. very dramatic. It was really dramatic because some other chef didn't show up. I couldn't do it anymore. So I had lost for something, for a salty scallop, whatever. So <laughs> I get call, I get this call back at the hotel, and they're like, well, can you come back? And I was like, that's not really how this works. <laughs> um, but I did, and then I lasted a really long time. And But I learned a lot in the first sort of episode and a half, which is that these people are all amazingly talented, interesting chefs, and they're not saying anything so I jumped into this format of, well, I might as well crack a lot of jokes and be a jackass. I remember that. With, res- with Restaurant Wars, I remember them saying, oh, Hugh's such a showman. Oh, it God, was very- yes. But when you were saying before that Top Chef has been really huge for you, like I think there are lots of cooks who for whom Top Chef has been really huge, but for you it's been huge in such a different way. It's a really different way. Because, because it launched this hosting career. Yeah, the hosting stuff, which has been great, and that kind of you know solidifies you within the franchise, and you get the benefits of that. There, there are... Even now, if you went through the people who are on last season of Top Chef, I would remember three of them. Mm -hmm. And which I'm sure I love you all, but. um, (laughs) But you're totally unmemorable. But I mean, it's just, you know, it's a machine and it just kind of spews people out and that's fine. But very rarely do people come out of it. And, you know, I can you can name the people who really come out of it and really have taken it and launched their careers. Stephanie Zard, uh, Dale Talday's done so good. Um, but, you know, 
but as, now we're now we're reaching to find like more names yeah no. we are we're done <laughs> that's <laughs> it no i mean the, the voltaggios richard boys sure. has done really well so there are a number of them but for that many people that is like five percent of the chefs who have competed on top chef and it's, it's not always the winners who do that well there are plenty of people who have won who kind of faded into anonymity as well yeah. um so but you know the thing with me is i I, I hope it's never perceived as a one-trick pony. I do write books, and I am an actual chef, and I mean, I have four restaurants, so I don't know. It's you're it's multi-talented. <laughs> so this stuff, this TV stuff. Do you think it's? Do you enjoy it? You think it's fun, or you know, like what's the? Well, I do it because I made a pact with the devil a long time ago, <laughs> and I can't figure out how to get out of it. No, but I think I think what you said though, like you realized that, especially on masters. So like Top Chef regular like top chef prime and top chef masters are such different shows and they have they such are. different vibes because i think the the talent pool especially now that we're in later seasons of top chef top chef the these are folks who are using this as a springboard to achieve fame right and or to like put themselves out in front of investors it's like this yeah, live and the masters multi-episode are already there. and the masters are are chefs who are known names and established yeah. presences and so for you to realize that there was this hole and like like oh like you know i'm smart and funny and weird and i yeah, can I do mean, this thing floyd cardoz is a beautiful human and amazingly skilled chef and he, he unfortunately when put in front of the camera really wants to talk about his family uh, over and over again which is great but you're, they're going to use that once right um and it'll be a nice little beautiful storyline for a second but um you know uh sarcasm and making fun of situations and um which i like doing um is imminently repeatable in different ways um, and is a medium that is fun. I, I think the thing I enjoy most and hoping that I've gained the allowance to do this in this industry is I feel like I'm now capable and willing to make fun of an industry that people are really sacred. There are so many sacred cows in this industry. I mean, you guys are famous for it too in a lot of ways at Eater, um, but I'm kind of famous for it too. I don't mind calling out the people we are. Do you ever get in trouble? No, not really. I'm sure, I'm sure there's some people who probably want to kick me in the nuts, but that's okay. <laughs> I sometimes want to kick myself in the nuts. So did the Top that's Chef hard. stuff, did it uh, open up other opportunities to do things with your business, to do things with the cookbook stuff? Or was that already kind no, of... No, I mean, the cookbook stuff was already in the works. Uh, you know, the Beard Awards were already, you know, that mm-hmm. type of stuff were already pretty much, you know, that that was separate, which was nice. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't want the accolades to come from the magnifying glass of television and i don't think they did has it given me other things that have been very bountiful to me and i'm very blessed with yes i mean obviously it allows for some sort of other uh gigs and uh jobs that uh, become lucrative and and are are great and an allowance of more investors and things like that if you want them i'm always hesitant about that though you know i have four restaurants i'm majority shareholder of all of them and enjoy it and like you know I like what I've created and I have control over. It's a pretty broad question, but what has been your strategy for expansion over the years? I mean, you go from one restaurant that's 18 years old, yeah. and then the second one was what, like five or six years after yeah, that? Yes, so I think it was six years after that. Was that a big leap? Was that like a really... You know, yeah. So I don't I don't get dubbed as, geez, that guy opens a lot of restaurants. Yeah. Uh, it's like four over 18 years. It's not really uh, churning about Chipotle style. Um, <laughs> it's a sustainable pace. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And, and it's a pace that hopefully, you know, to me, I wanted to stick relatively near my home. And, um, you know, more and more as we regionalize food, the state of Georgia has become 
a it's my people now and they've been very supportive um and so we wanted to keep it within the state and does that mean that someday we won't open up elsewhere no but we just like being contained there what was the food idea for the first restaurant you know what you want to do you know i left gary danko kind of thinking god man fine dining is a bitch so i wanted to do a really community inspired restaurant and something that would evoke a lot of the past in Southern cooking. And it was kind of an exploration for me to learn more. But it was also meant to be a teaching restaurant. I realized that I could not put fancy tablecloths in the restaurant and do fancy service in a really small town and expect to survive. So it had to be a restaurant that was people were going to come to three or four times a week and you know really live at. So it couldn't be overly expensive, but it was high end. And I was just stubborn with it. And it worked and but it was like just my food it was like southern food done with a french background a french technique so it worked i'm really intrigued by this idea of a teaching restaurant like it makes perfect sense as soon as you said it like if you sort of go into a a town or a community that doesn't have the i don't know what the turn of phrase would be but like you know that isn't ready to support a giant white tablecloth like you know veal trinade kind of thing and like but there's so many of those in the last 20 years you can look at people uh doug tarbush in minneapolis and look at even michael in cleveland you know they're they're those restaurants are iconic there now but i don't think they people knew what arugula was when they opened up mm-hmm. we opened up in 1990 or in 2000 uh, with five and ten so you know the, the food television up until that point i mean that was way before Top Chef even started. It was all home cooking for television. Top Chef didn't start until like 2007. No internet that we can speak of. <laughs> no, then. but Emeril had taught the world that arugula existed. And he taught, <laughs> I mean, and it was an amazingly important thing that people could have some connection to the food. But it was still a matter of sweetbreads are kind of like chicken McNuggets and you'll yeah. really like them. But it, it needs to be you learning with them. It can't be so talking down to people as it's all just a matter of you know you can't just like show up and be like i'm going to teach you what you should know which which goes to a bigger extension of how i position myself in the food world i'm not an expert in food i am a learner i'm constantly learning which is why i enjoy what i do if i was an expert i think i'd get really bored tomorrow and be like oh i'm done with this you know so to me it's just like we're at that stage in a young restaurant where I was a very young chef and we were learning every day what to do. And so everything was new and it was fun, but it was new for the clients too. And they would come and, you know, new food and specials and stuff every day. So it was very engaging. You must have made some amazing relationships with the community and with your diners. Did you? Yeah, we did. I mean, you know, I remember opening night, people like Michael Stipe being there and uh, who has become a very good friend over the years and Bertus Downs, who's actually one of my, uh, it owns part of the National and he was their manager and for years and years and years. And those people, I mean, it's a small town, so they've become our friends. And Athens is a phenomenally interesting artistic town and we love it and we can afford it and I can't afford this city. <laughs> How did the buzz kind of generate around the first restaurant? You know, was there one thing? Did it- you know, it was hard in the first year. Uh, it, you know, there was one thing. So uh, I'm known as being relatively stubborn, relatively ballsy, for lack of a better term. Um, I emailed the Atlanta Journal-Constitution restaurant critic and was like, I realized that Athens isn't in your normal domain because we're just kind of outside of the Atlanta area. He wouldn't wasn't really reviewing stuff outside of there. It was John Kessler who's 
James Beard Award winning uh, writer who's a, who's a really interesting guy and a great restaurant critic and great writer. And I invited him to come over and have dinner and review us. And I was... That's not how it usually works. No, it's not. <laughs> and I did, didn't... I kind of heard back. I think was, he was like, well, we'll think about that or something like that. And, and then I didn't hear anything. And, you know, two months later, a review popped up and we had three out of four stars. So and I'm sorry. That was a very sincere act, it sounds like. Like, hey... We- I would like for you to check my place out. Yeah, it was sincere. It wasn't meant to be flashy. It was almost be like, hey, I would love to get your assessment of what we're doing here because I think we're doing something special and I think it's working and I think people are really appreciating it. And God damn it, we could use the help because the, you know, the first year is always hard in a restaurant. Everybody's like, oh, it must be great to feel like you've op- opened a new restaurant. And it's like, have you ever dragged your face over gravel? How does that feel? <laughs> Opening up a restaurant is the hardest thing anyone uh, in our industry will ever do. I mean, it's really, there are other industries that are equally as hard. I'm not putting it that way. But we learned work really long, arduous hours. There's so many things happen in the first six months of a restaurant. So, you know, my one investor I had there was like thinking, wanting to change concept because maybe it wasn't busy enough. And I was just like, you know, if we change, I'm gone. And, and, <laughs> and so I kind of held the feet over the fire in the right way. And one, but we got a really good review. And then, you know, within 12 months, I had Dana Cowan calling and I had one best new chef. And, you know, so those things change restaurants in some ways for the better. And this one, it definitely is for the better. And, you know, then, you know, two years later, I started to get uh, beer nominations and things like that. So, but that, you know, feels like 40 years ago now. Do you think there are ways that that kind of national attention can change restaurants for the worse? Um, not really. I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. It's probably different so. now than it was then, too. I think there's... Yeah, I mean, we didn't have any PR firm. We didn't have a marketing firm. I mean, we still don't. I still... I don't understand that. that the whole... <laughs> chasm of the business i love the people who i know do that don't get me wrong i'm just not your ideal client we just do all that in-house and we always have but i mean does that type of accolade change a restaurant for the worse no i mean i I think it's due props if people can get them and that's the thing in this industry it's like i am very blessed i'm very lucky i'm very proud of what i've accomplished but you know there's so many people out there who are awesome chefs who will never read about we will never hear about. They toil away in kitchens 90 hours a week. And they're equally as good, if not better than me. I just, we're, I'm lucky. We're all lucky. Let's be honest. Why do you think it is that we don't hear about them? Do you think it's that they don't want to be heard about? Or is it a question of the media discovering them? Or Are, are, you, are you guys part of the media? I guess we are. It's our okay. fault. Well, because if you look at Eater and Grub Street today, you guys are probably talking about the exact same shit. <laughs> and then if you go to all the major magazines and they talk about the new restaurants that are op- opening, you're all talking about the exact same shit. And that comes from publicists and it comes from what's being hyped and it comes for how somebody wants to dream about the next article that they're going to write because it was conceived and kernelized for something they read that week. And that's how it goes. But with the first restaurant, you know, you talk about that first review. You know, I, I have an idea about kind of how food media has you know, changed a lot over the last 15 years. But that first review and that first wave, the first accolades you got and the awards, 
did that keep people coming to the restaurant for years? I mean, did you? I mean, it's such a small town. No, I, I mean, it's such a small town of 100,000 people. And we're very honest. You know, it's okay. So maybe it's 140,000 now. Well, in that, you know, we're a restaurant that has a check average of $53. Okay. So in a poverty stricken area with a poverty rate of 37%, I now appeal probably to about 16,000 diners. I think it just gave them, I, I think it made them proud that we were winning stuff and accolades and lauding they were already believing in us and they were just prideful so they just kept coming back i was their kid who was look i was never pompous about this we were just working our asses off and it was you know when people are working their butts off and you can tell that it's like palpably authentic and exciting yeah it was that type of vibe it's the best it, it's the best feeling to get when you walk into a restaurant but but you know that feeling yeah immediately when you walk in can't fake it no you can't you know, there was, there's also a hype about various restaurants, and sometimes you believe it, and sometimes it is a complete check when you go there because it's not what the hype what mm-hmm. made you feel. The hype about Rose's Luxury, I was like, eh, whatever. I finally went there like two, uh, like a month ago. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Like everybody in that restaurant was just so jazzed to be there. They're, the waiters were so smart about it. They were just, the cooks in the kitchen just had smiles on their face, and they were doing good work, and the food was stupendously good. And it was all without pomp or circumstance. And so that was possible. And that's what we had going for us. The reviews helped. I mean, and all of that stuff, press helps. But it doesn't help us like it would help you in New York. I think if we'd gotten a really bad review, it would have killed us, obviously. But in a smaller setting, I don't think a really good review makes you twice as busy, let's say. With the second restaurant, uh, what did you get to do in terms of the food? Did you get to make some changes? Yeah, I mean, you, you conceive different things. So the second restaurant was uh, conceived with my friend and one of my cooks at the time, and sous chefs, Peter Dale, who's a partner, and he's the executive chef of the National. And we kind of wanted to make it out to be his baby, and we did, and that's his thing. And I'm very respective and understanding that I have a team. I use we a lot. It's not I. Um, people correct me because sometimes it is I, but it's rare. usually it's all we. So it's me and a team of chefs. There are four restaurants. Each one has an executive chef. Do I make food decisions? Sure. Do I write the complete menu? No way. I mean, I'm, my job now is to be a baseball manager. I put the team on the field. I figure out when the cleanup hitter is doing well and when he's not. I put the relief pitcher in. That's my job. So I'm managing more than ever. So I've always wondered this with um, you know chefs like you who have multiple restaurants, but and, you know, different executive chefs, maybe the different ref- restaurants, but there's something culinary-wise that is indicative of something you started or something that's... You've got to understand the theme. You've got to understand the uh, the gestation of that restaurant and how it came to be and what the idea behind it was. There's a core idea, and sometimes we haven't been totally true to it, and we've had to correct ourselves and five and ten's in a loftier place with more ambitious food than ever because of Jason Zygmunt, who's there now as a young chef. But his food is still it pulls the heartstring of what I want it to be, and it still follows a path that I want it to take. And the service and the conception and the warmth behind it is all, it's not my idea, but it's my execution. How often are you in the kitchen? Not much. But you cook at home a lot, I cook right? at home a ton. A, because I have two kids, but B, because, you know, I write cookbooks and I test stuff for, restu- uh, for restaurants and for magazines and do all this stuff. 
and for corporates or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I work out of my home office, my assistant and I do. Uh, and, you know, that's where a lot of it happens. We've got a really good kitchen at home. So. But so have you always been a home cook or is that sort of something that evolved out of being a restaurant cook? No, it totally evolved out of being a restaurant cook. So they're really different. It is really different. Um, but I think you're seeing more interplay between the two. You know, my food at home is probably most res- reminiscent of something like squirrel in L.A. <laughs> than the restaurants. You know, it's like really fun rice bowls and beautiful d- different plays on proteins where the actual protein's much a lesser element than the amount of vegetables surrounding it, et cetera, et cetera. You have this anecdote in the in the introduction to the Broad Fork, your vegetable-centric cookbook, where you talk about your neighbor asking you what to do with a kohlrabi, and you're like, oh, just roast it. And he's like, no, I want you to give me like a chefy answer. Yeah. Do you feel like there's this expectation that you cook like really chefy restauranty food at home? Yeah, there is. I mean, I think that the food I cook at home is very tied to my philosophy of the moment and has been of the moment for the last five years, which is separated from the restaurants, which is this belief that America has forgotten how to cook. So I want to prove to them that they, they can cook really affordably healthy and awesome food that isn't that complicated or doesn't take a matter of time. So that's kind of my test every day in the kitchen now at home is to prove that first to myself and then be able to, to spill those beans to everybody else. Are you the only one who cooks in your family? No, my wife cooks a little bit. Uh, she's a good cook. That's the kids cook a little bit. How old They're are dangerous. your kids? They're 10 and 12. So that's like a learning how to cook age. You were cooking when you were 14. Yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're skilled. They're, they know what they're doing. Um, you know, these are kids who know how to make a vinaigrette from scratch. And they've got life skills. And they're life skills that don't never go away. So, I mean, I think that, you know, but that that's, we're also addressing that passionately, which is we've kind of created a charitable organization that's dedicated to creating a uh, home at curriculum to swap out with the current family and consumer sciences curriculum. Um, That's to be amazing. Life skills. So it's like how to poach an egg. What's the name of the organization? Seed Life Skills. So we're, we're falling under a group called Captain Planet, and we've just really started, and we're just hiring somebody. So it's like 12 components, everything from why and how you sew a, hem a pair of pants or sew on a button to how to poach an egg and say that how to poach an egg would finish with a 20-minute video from Jacques Pepin showing you how to poach an egg. And maybe next week is Tom Cleekio showing you how to make a really simple salad dressing. But it's just like, it's not skills to create chefs. It's skills to create better citizenry. And because when you get to 20 in the hardest point in your life, if you know how to make rice, not minute rice, rice, and a vinaigrette, and roasted carrots, and crisp tofu in the oven, you can probably live a lot better life, right? Yeah. And it costs about the same. And it costs about the same as a happy meal. Is this whole argument that people are like, well, good food's expensive. I just call BS on that. I just don't think that's true. Yes, caviar and foie gras are expensive. Yes, wagyu beef is expensive. But good rice and good tofu and good carrots are not expensive, even at the farmer's market. Sewing on a button, too. I mean, it's not food, but like, I feel like... Nobody knows how to do it No, I was literally... This is so... Little House on the Prairie, I was literally darning my husband's socks yeah. a couple weeks ago because one of his socks had a hole in it. And he was like really pissed because they were his favorite socks. I was like, I can sew that closed for you. And it was this weird moment where we both realized that like we have the skills to make our 
goods last longer. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, luckily we're in an age that's starting to treasure goods again because we lived in such a disposable world for so long where nothing could be fixed. But, you know, I mean, it's it's just basic, basic skills. It's like, how do you roast a chicken well? Did you like, take home ec when you were in school? No, I never did. You, did Greg? Nope. I did in seventh grade. We learned how to sew a pillowcase and make a bunt cake. Do you remember how to make that bunt cake? No. So but like, I just, I, you know, my, my Beatrice, who's now 12, came home when she was 10. She was like, we had home ec equivalent uh, at school and we learned how to make red velvet cupcakes from an instant mix and how to make instant croissants from a tube, the dough ones, and they wrap them in bacon and bake them in the oven. That's like, not home ec. That, that, that's gross. <laughs> um, and it's not a life skill. I mean, a life skill is something you will use potentially every day of your life. And I, I don't know if I like Bundt cake that much. But I do remember that learning how to make Bundt cake taught me how to measure and how to yeah. read a recipe. Yeah. And there were, I mean, I've made Bundt cake plenty of times since then. I have no idea if it was that recipe, but... But I think that might have been the first time I ever cooked some, made a baked good not from a mix, which was meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Amer most of America doesn't know that you can make right. cake from scratch. Or that like the the thing that the cake mix box provides to you, like the the work that it saves is actually the easiest part. Right. Pancake like, mix is like, yeah, it's just a matter of reaching a little bit more into the cupboard. Like, it's actually, they, you still add the egg and the milk yeah, and the melted butter. They just pre-mixed the flour, baking soda, yeah. and sugar Basically, for you. Basically, you're taking <laughs> leavener and flour and the sugar and combining them and selling them for five times what it should cost. So it's not like <laughs> I don't believe in the fact that life can be made a little bit easier by convenience products, but there's so many stupid ones out there. Okay, the fact that crumbled feta exists. <laughs> like, do you ever just have that what the fuck moment? It's like, really? Have you ever tried to crumble feta? That was probably some like, you know, Don Draper, you know, marketing conversation that happened. Yeah, you know? yeah. I in the big room. I, in I, Greece. I feel like my hypothesis <laughs> for Greece. stuff like that, like for chocolate chips and crumbled feta and all these things that like chocolate chips, I think, have much more of a function than crumbled feta. But like my guess whenever I see stuff like that is like, oh, this is like the shit that was left at the bottom of the production facility and they were just like yeah oh, you may be onto something there we're yeah. gonna save yeah. costs by Buy packaging some. this in, as convenience a, yeah exactly like how long done silver is um i can't believe i know this you, you you can go there and buy the bits of fried dough from the bottom of the fryer just like the crispy bits the hush, no, they call them hush puppies no, no right? hush puppies are actual hush puppies they're like cornmeal mm -hmm. Did you say he was giving you like a death stare oh, I mean, hush puppies <laughs> I just remember and that I, I know, I know. I, I the hush puppies yeah. are delicious in a southern delicacy, but I, I seem to recall that they had them there. They Maybe do. I'm... They sell hush puppies, but the, yeah, but, they do. Yeah. But you can also get like it's this just is fryer bits, fryer bits, ah. yeah. and they've like it, it's the same idea as the crumbled feta. It's like oh, there's this shit at the bottom. Let's package it. Or like, yeah, which is, I mean, uh, yeah. It's like a very... And then it probably took off and they were like, oh no, people want us to pre-crumble their feta. And then all the feta became pre-crumbled. Pre it's like a very sinister version of, uh, we were chatting with Dan Barber a few weeks ago about his wasted pop-up. Right. Uh, yeah, they're, they're selling the waste. Right. Which is great. <laughs> which is great from a business perspective. But then when you package it as a time saver, people think that that's time that needs to be saved. Right. Which is right. not. Like yeah. it actually, what, it takes all of 60 seconds to measure out three cups of flour and like, okay, thank you. You've put it in a plastic bag inside a box that I like. It's but it, but it, and that that is unfortunately this 
amazingly corporatized America has made us all feel like morons. Like we just can't do anything anymore. It's unless it's spelled out in like pictures on the back of a box. It's like, we got no chance. So, you know, I think my message is, well, we do have a chance and you just need to learn how to do things from scratch a little bit and your life will be a lot better. So, and you can always opt out if you, you really need to save that and i'm not saying you can't go and have a fast food meal i'm not saying that i'm just saying you know you need to have the somewhat both worlds can you know capabilities what recipe in the new book are you most stoked about to be putting out there in the world um i mean you know it's divided into seasons there's a lot of different stuff going on but there's some there's pickles and there's you know, they're really simple, like spaghetti with arugula pesto, salumi, and parmesan reggiano. I mean, they're these really, really simple, There's like five ingredients. There's something in here I'd never heard of before. I don't know if I'm going to even pronounce it right. Hush puppies? Yeah, yeah. hush puppies. Um, y- yakin? Yakin? Yakin, which is like a proving ground tuber. It kind of tastes like a cross between potato and jicama. So there's one farmer who farms like a lot of edible bamboo and uh, yacon and stuff like that. And it's just crazy, weird, strange tubers. They're really good. Really do you good. cook them with bacon? Do you do like bacon and yacon? Bacon and yacon? No. No, I haven't gotten should, to that. You should do that because it would be hilarious. Phonetic, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Another direction. Everyone, everyone should make recipes based on like fun punning phrases. That's how Dr. I feel. Doctor Seuss style. Yes. So I uh, know. I mean, there's I don't know. There's 250 recipes. So it's they're they're all my favorite. I think I'm supposed yeah. to say that. So. Oh no! I think you're allowed to have favorites in your own cookbook. They don't know. They're not sentient beings. They're not going to love you less. Yes. No, I know. I mean, this griddled asparagus, peperad, poached eggs, and grits. I made that the other day. Uh, that was great. So, yeah, there's just a gazillion things. And it's just a way to look at things and make sure that nothing's going to to pulp in your crisper drawer because you have no idea what to do with it. I'm really bad at that. Things liquefy in my refrigerator. It's disgusting. I mean, somebody had a good point about living in New York. It's like you eat out five nights a week. And so, you know, that stuff that actually is in your grocery, in your fridge is actually probably going to go bad. And then you buy, like, you know, a bunch of cilantro and you use an eighth of it. And what do you do with the rest of it? So... You guys need like a sharing, a cilantro shaving, a sharing network. (laughs) I just got a CSA thing, but it's like a fancy CSA where they give you enough for a few meals. And it's like, it impels you to be like, no, I am not going to throw away this ramp. I am not going to (laughs) throw away this, this sprig of time. I must use it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, food waste in America, it's like. Dan's putting the spotlight on it, which is great because it's disgusting. I mean, it's it's horrible uh, how much food we waste. So we could feed our population a number of times over. With the stuff we just throw away. Yeah. Well, on that very uplifting note, mm-hmm. we Speaking have a throwaways. Smile. <laughs> um, we have a section of the interview we like to call the lightning round. Oh, good. Let it roll. We're going to ask you a bunch of questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. We're not going to read any deep psychological insight into this while you're sitting in front Helen of us. Helen won't, but I might. <laughs> okay. All right. Question number one. What is your airport vice? Bagels. Really? Yeah. I'm already judging you. Bagel Wait. in the Delta Lounge. <laughs> With the, they got new toasters. I'm really excited. I spent a lot of time in the Delta Lounge. So, yeah. What do you put on your bagel? Uh, butter, cream cheese, and jam. All at once. Mm-hmm. On an everything bagel. 
a lot of things. I know. It's well, he's a, he's a chef. He's a chef. He's got lofty I'm ideas about food. Fast metabolism. metabolism. Um, when you're on a road trip, what is the album that you blast in your car? Against Me, the Axl Rose album. Do you sing along? Sure. Awesome. What is your favorite beverage, alcoholic beverage? Oh, it depends. There's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, me this time of year, probably just really good white wine. If you were not a chef slash cookbook author slash restaurateur slash television personality, what would you be doing with your life? Probably an ad sales. Uh, not ad sales. Like, I don't know, like advertising, I guess, you know. What's your favorite hockey team? Montreal Canadiens. Why are they the best? Well, they're not the best right now. We're losing a second round of the playoffs, just like we did last year to the sucky New York Rangers. This year, we're losing to Tampa. Tampa shouldn't be good at hockey. All their <laughs> Canadians are old people. So I, 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 they're, they're usually the best because they're the Montreal Canadiens. Historically, they have been the best. Is there a hockey team in Georgia? I'm just assuming you there like hockey because be. you're Canadian, by the way. I'm, I'm profiling huge, you. Huge Do you like all the classic Canadian things? Do you like poutine and... Yeah, I like poutine. I have poutine rules. What are your poutine rules? Not outside of Quebec. That's like one oh, very oh, you good only rule. Eat, oh, that's yeah, that's brilliant. Poutine is one of those regional things. You're a poutine locavore. It should yeah. never <laughs> be served in Tampa. Well, in New Jersey, it's called disco fries. <sighs> that's wrong. <laughs> well, hey Hugh, thanks so much for uh, stopping by the Eater Upsell today. Good, good. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, we'll sit down with Alex Rye, one of the great chefs of Spanish cuisine in New York City. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>